Welcome to The Space of Justice. I'm your host, Michael Betsecond. My pronouns are he, him, his. And today I'm joined by none other than filmmaker, activist, and director of the organization Durham Can, Tinu Diver. Uh, Tinu, before we jump into today's conversation, can you introduce yourself? Give us a little bit of you know background about who you are, what your relationship is to Duke and Durham, uh, areas of interest, pronouns, and uh, maybe a fact about yourself that you find interesting. Hello. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me. Um, so my full name is Atinu K. Dever, uh, and I go by Tinu. My pronouns are she, hers. And my relationship with Duke and Durham um, goes back to when I first came to North Carolina as a college student uh, to attend that other school up the road. And I lived in Durham. (laughs) (laughs) I lived in Durham um, while I was attending law school at that same school up the road. Uh, And then my, I guess, reintroduction to Durham was uh, after having moved away after law school, practicing in Boston for several years, moving back to North Carolina in 2015. And when I began uh, the certificate program at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke. And so um, Duke has been my my artistic and documentary community uh, for several years. And then in 2019, I began uh, working with Durham CAN, uh, which stands for Congregations, Associations, and Neighborhoods, uh, which is a broad-based community organization that I know we'll talk a little bit more about in a minute, um, but started working with them um, as a community organizer and then became their lead organizer and executive director in November of 2019. Um, and a fact about myself that I find interesting, keeping with the theme of space, one of the things I was thinking about was that I've pretty much lived my entire life in three specific <laughs> regions. Um, one being, so. one being Boston, which is where I was born. Um, my parents came to the U S from Nigeria in the seventies and, uh, went to school there. They were living in uh, Mattapan and, uh, my, my dad went to Northeastern. My mom went to UMass Boston. And so I was born there. Um, And then Boston is actually where, as I mentioned, um, I ended up working for for a few years after law school. Uh, Then uh, the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, DMV, specifically Prince George's County, PG County, Maryland, and uh, which is where I was raised um, from the age of one till (laughs) and where my (laughs) my, my parents still live. Um, And then uh, the Regent Triangle area. So, yeah, I went to school in Chapel Hill, lived in Durham. Uh, and now, uh, since moving back, um, and live in Wake County, right over the Durham, uh, Wake border. Um, so I've pretty much just been bouncing around those three <laughs> regions, <laughs> literally my entire life. Um, that's awesome. so, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And I love the fact that you kind of already have partitioned yourself. You're like, this is when I was super young. This is when I was a little bit older and <laughs> now this is everything else. So, um, So I'm a big believer that life finds the work that your specific hands need to be uh, in the middle of. Um, How did you come to the work that you're doing with Dermkin? And how do you feel that you're enacting change in the world? And how is that work necessary? And why is that? Hmm. Yeah, that's a really powerful statement, belief. Um, And, you know, my my coming to Dermkin was definitely a journey. Um, you know, I don't know if they, if it's still the same way now in schools, but generally, you know, what happens in high school is you sit down with your counselor and they're like, you know, looking at your yeah. grades and things and like, yeah. okay, you should be this, you know, and I, and community organizer is never really, I don't think it's in any of the books for careers. <laughs> I, again, yeah. I don't know if that's changed. Maybe it's, maybe it's in some books in different parts of the country. I don't know. But like, I, um, 
did not grow up in a union household. I didn't grow up around a culture of kind of organizing in a formal sense. You know, now mm. that I know more about kind of what organizing is, you know, in a kind of deconstructed way, I can I can kind of see glimpses of how that was showing up in my world and in my life. But, you know, I didn't grow up with an idea and a concept of that being like a thing. Like I, I knew who Cesar Chavez was, but I never thought, mm. oh, he's an organizer. I, you know, I thought he was, oh, he's, you know, the farm workers guy and et cetera. So um, I, you know, I think, so my journey to Durham can happened at a time when I was being very intentional about one, I had this realization of like just how much of our lives we spend working and mm. wondering why in light of that, we didn't actually spend more time talking to young people, helping young people think about, you know, how they want to spend such a significant part of their life. Mm. Um, and it was also the first time in my adult life that I had taken the time to kind of stop and ask myself, you know, what I wanted, what I wanted to do, what were my values, what was important to me and how, how I could align my life, um, in such a way that, 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 that was reflected. Mm. Um, and so it just so happened around that time, um, I was actually working, I worked at two universities. I was working at a university and actually my alma mater, um, and had made a decision about taking some time to do that. And so I, what, what I thought was going to be a, like a three month kind of sabbatical turned into a six month sabbatical. <laughs> um, but during that time, I ended up going to a training um, that was being led by um, folks from Durham Can, as well as the uh, national network that were affiliated with um, the Industrial Areas Foundation. And um, it was the training was actually in Durham. Um, and by the end of the training, one of the instructors approached me and said, would you consider a vocation in organizing? And wow. I just looked at him like, what, what is that? <laughs> I was like, Dude, I don't know what you're talking about. And so, um, but he, you know, he asked me to consider, you know, talking some more about what that would mean. And, um, you know, you know, suggested some reading for me to do, um, which I did. And I also just began talking to some other organizers that organized um, in other affiliated organizations. Um, a lot of them actually in the, the Maryland, D.C., uh, Virginia area. And came to start learning about particularly this kind of um, this particular discipline organizing that stems from um, what, what people who study this would refer to as Alinsky style, referring to Saul Alinsky, who's kind of um, noted as, you know, a, kind of a founder or, a, you know, a, an architect of a certain particular kind of approach to organizing that was really rooted in um, uh, organizing that happened in Chicago. Um, and mm. so... Um, yeah, so I, you know, decided to to consider it. And I was actually considering like, well, what is what does even that idea of vocation mean? Like, what does it mean to be called? Who does the calling? Right. Exactly. Is it a one-time thing? Is it a process? You know, all these things. And so um I definitely got to a point where one, I had been exposed to so many aspects of the work, including some of the actions that Durham Can had been doing, that um I was really uh moved. And then I also felt like I wouldn't know unless I try, at least tried it. And so I had the opportunity to, uh, to, to try it out. And, um, and it was a process of, of me getting to know the organization, the organization getting to know me and me trying to figure out organizing. Right. Um, because most of my colleagues have um, come into this work, maybe right out of college or had some experience in college. Um, and so I'm kind of, uh, you know, the pink unicorn, Pink, pink glitter unicorn. And um, <laughs> that, I, you know, I kind of came into this work at a different path and a different time in life. So that's how I came to the work that I'm doing. Um, most of my work has been focused on organizing 
with residents in Durham Housing Authority communities, which I know we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, and um, and of course, Durham Can is so Durham Can itself has been around since 1999, April 1999, okay. um, when, it was, when it was founded. And um, it's really interesting because when you're talking about space and talking about thinking about Duke, um, you know, Durham Can was founded by um, a lot of alums and students from Duke Divinity School. And so hmm. that, that there's always been a strong connection, and I and I don't know that Durham Can would be what it would be without Duke Divinity School. Can has you know been working on issues in Durham, a range of issues in Durham for for years. We were actually just having a conversation with folks from Congressman David Price's office in December, right before the holiday, and uh, one of his staffers, you know, made a very you know, made a comment that actually warmed my heart. She said, you know, Durham is better because of Durham Can. And she was reflecting back to some of Can's early actions around, you know, lead, um, lead, lead abatement, you know, in, in residences and things. Right. And so exactly. um, my, I feel like I'm enacting change in the world because the job of an organizer is primarily to develop the leadership of others. And mm. I feel like that is also like the gift that keeps giving. Like when you're able to, help people kind of step into this full sense of themselves and see them come alive um, and how that then affects how they show up in other areas of their lives. You know, that is what really excites me. And it's so funny because when a lot of people think about Durham Can, a lot of a lot of it's because they've been to one of our actions. And so it's like 600 people packed into, you know, a room and we're making, you know, making, uh, you know, political folks make commitments, et cetera. But, um, but really the work of Broadway's organizing is building institutions and developing leaders. And um, I feel like that is necessary because it is imperative for the survival of a functioning democratic society. Mm. Um, and I think particularly being a part of a generation that is approaching how it relates to institutions differently. I'm, I'm barely a millennial, a millennial, millennial grandma's is what I <laughs> borrowed that term, but I made, I made it in. I'm not Gen X, I'm millennial. Um, <laughs> Just but, right under the wire. <laughs> <laughs> which is hilarious now. Cause I'm, you know, I'm literally like this, the, I and literally am like the bridge generation in that yeah. we've got, you know, the boomers and the Xers there's me. And now I've got interns who are like, I guess, Gen Z and then, I heard the new term is like Gen I or something like that. Cause every, you know, they're on all the I, all their, you know, all the I technology. I yeah. 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 Which makes sense. Cause you know, I mean, you get to Z you're at the end of the alphabet. So I guess you gotta, you know, gotta come up with a different letter, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but you know, um, so being a millennial and being part of a generation that is relating to institutions in a way that is different, right. From pre- prior generations is also something I think a lot about. And so I think, you know, for a healthy, functioning democracy, whether nationally, statewide, locally, um, it's important to have healthy institutions in, in, in these, inter- mm. um, you know, these mediating institutions in particular. And it's important to have uh, leaders. It's important to have right. people who are in their communities, care about their communities, know what's going on, and are able to build power that's necessary to counteract the dominant power that is often um, at the, at, you know, often the cause of a lot of the pressures that our, our families or loved ones or communities face. I want to circle back to you talk about this organizing feature within your work. Uh, 
I'm curious, you know, you're, you're a trained lawyer. How does that help your organizing abilities? <laughs> I'm chuckling because it's actually really hard. I figured. <laughs> because one, I, I enjoy being a lawyer and I, you know, my licenses are still current. Like I enjoy being a lawyer. So I'm not someone who, um, you know, cause I do have colleagues who come to organize. It's funny. Cause actually I think the reverse is more common. Like, I guess right, I'm on like right. the reverse Obama plan. Cause he was like an organizer. <laughs> then he went to law school. Right. Right. So, right. <laughs> did the reverse. Um, but I think, but and that's pretty common. You'll, you'll see folks who are organizers who then, you know, decide to, to pursue law as another kind of approach to change. Um, and it's really hard because I have to be really clear with myself and with um, leaders when I'm like that I'm the organizer and I'm not the lawyer. Right, right. And because advocacy is a different theory of change, it's no less, um, you know, it's not it's not less than, it's not, one's not better and one's not worse, but it's a different theory that focuses and centers different things. So when you're the advocate, that, that word, that root word advocate comes from, the Latin word for voice, right? And mm-hmm. so when you're an attorney, you're an advocate, you're standing up, whatever, in front of the judge, in front of a you know um, court, whatever, and you're the voice for you know your client. Um, but you're the one who's, who's talking and your voice and your advocacy and your argument or gifts of persuas- persuasion are what's centered um, mm-hmm. the outcome for, for in that situation. Whereas as an organizer, I have to often you know, step back we teach, right. we teach uh, what's called, you know, the iron rule in juxtaposition to the golden rule, but the iron rule never do for others what they can and should do for themselves. And that's really mm-hmm. hard. That's probably one of the hardest things about organizing is like figuring that out. Like, how do you know if someone can and should do something for themselves? And even if they can and should do something there, you know, is there still another reason why, you know, they might make a certain decision? I'm thinking about, a you know, a story someone shared with me one of our member institutions, First Presbyterian Church, they've been doing quite an amazing job of providing rental assistance and utility assistance for folks during COVID. Right. And uh, Jane Williams, one of the leaders there, was sharing a story with me about a gentleman who basically had to make a decision about paying his rent or paying for a laptop for his son who had just started college. And his college had gone remote. And so in order for his son to be able to attend school, he needed a laptop. And he was going to get his son that laptop, you know? And so, um, you know, I think that there, I would imagine that there are aspects of being a lawyer that are helpful, particularly because I practiced um, most of my career was in the federal government. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, too intimidated by like navigating like <laughs> right the system the the the, right. the, uh, the um think about that whole like Alice in Wonderland like all of the regulation yes. regulatory frameworks yes. you know of of um of agencies um so there's a comfort level there um and I think there's also a level of ability to focus on the issues as opposed to making it personal. Like mm. I lawyers, and I think it's just because of our training, like I could go into court with someone on the other side who might, I, I might, who I might consider a friend and we can go at it like in court, you know, around that issue, like intensely, but still be able to speak to each other afterwards. Right. Like we're able to think about how we're focused on addressing the issue in court because you have that duty to, to provide, you know, that zealous representation, right. For your client, right. Right. but for it not to get personal. Um, right. And I think that there's also a way in which, because again, 
part of our training, you're able to um, have the space to look at all these different sides of the issue. I always tell my leaders, there's always at least five sides to every story, you know, mm. and I think that comes from that that training um, as well. But it, it's challenging because I think I almost sometimes have to, um, what's the word, like restrain <laughs> myself because mm. right. there are things that I would do and, you know, actions I would take and I just have to kind of take a deep breath and, and not sabotage the development of people um, right. Now there are times when I see stuff and I'm like, nah, this, you know, and I'll, you know, and I'll handle <laughs> this things right. I'll like this. I'll handle things, you know, to use Olivia Pope phrase handled. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but it is hard to just not swoop in and try to, yeah. And, t- and kind of shortcut that. And I think that that's right. a, I think that that's something that's endemic and maybe we'll talk, this might come up later, but I do think that's something that's endemic in how we approach a lot of challenges in our community uh, in particularly around housing and space is like, you know, I'm the PhD, I'm the JD, I'm the whatever, I'm the expert, mm-hmm. you know, I've got the answer, I've got the key. And that doesn't, that's not, that's not always helpful. So actually, before we, I want, I want you to push into that, because we're about to do some, some actual definitions of things. But can you push into that function of being the expert, and thinking that you have the key and that necessary, that potentially being the disconnect. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. I mean, you know, we have a lot of (laughs) educated, degreed folk, you know, around. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's really dangerous when people who are actually, I think, who are experiencing the brunt of, you know, some of the challenges, the issues around housing, around space, are uh, ostensibly excluded and kept out of mm-hmm. being part of those solutions or their those experiences, you know, aren't part of the solutions. And trust me, like Durham can, we take research really seriously. Like we don't play. Like we do our research. We believe in data. We believe, you know, we're right. we're that's all part of all part of um, how we approach our organizing. And we are about building relational power. And building relational power involves spending a lot of time talking to people relating right. to people, hearing their stories, understanding what makes them angry, understanding what gives them joy, understanding, you know, their journey and, um, you know, what we'll talk, probably talk about later, you know, their self-interest. And that all gets shortchanged when people approach addressing things, whether maybe from a policy standpoint, by just going and running to, you know, uh, yes. you know, a department at their university going into a closet and then coming out with a policy recommendation that they've actually never maybe talked to any of the people who are infected by that policy to see right. if that makes sense or if that works. Um, and so that's something that I, I really push our leaders around is always like, okay, where should we be listening? Who should we be listening to? Have we right. listened enough? Are we asking right. the right questions? You know, um, you know, who else should we be listening to? So a lot right. of, a lot of listening for sure. And as how I, um, kind of push against that. Well, I, I, I do want to take the step back now and I do want to ask you some more direct questions connected to some of the initiatives, uh, and, and outcomes that, uh, just space as an organization is kind of after, um, regarding anti-racism, you know, we, this term has kind of floated a lot, uh, in the last handful of months, especially given the twin pandemics of COVID-19 and the racial reckoning that's happening in the United States, you know, mm-hmm. writ large. Um, and we have this thing showing up in campus spaces where folks are feeling 
obligated to be anti-racist and how they go about approaching whatever they're doing. Yeah. Um, and so I, I'm very curious, kind of, it's a, it's a two front question and you, you'll get used to me asking multi-parters. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like to do it. I, I know that it's probably, I don't know, there's probably better ways to interview people, but I like to give you all the questions that I want to ask so that you can kind of build a case for it rather than piecemealing it sometimes. Um, so, but, but how would you define anti-racism both for yourself personally and then professionally? And then how does Durham can define that? So I think of anti-racism as, as being intentional about acknowledging the realities of racial oppress, oppression and then also taking intentional steps to dismantle them. Mm. Um, and I think that fits for me both personally and professionally for myself. And, you know, that second part is really interesting because I don't know that Durham can, we we defined it until really recently. Mm. I think it was, let me get my years. So 2020, January, 2020, we were having our um, strategy team retreat and uh, the strategy team of Durham can functions like our board. And one of the things that we did, we did a few things. One is we had made this explicit decision that we were going to name racism, race, racism, whiteness, and white supremacy, and how it shows up in our organizing and in our organization. And one of the things that we did is I'd um, come across a book uh, called Poverty in North Carolina. I think I got the, t the title right, but written by um, Jean Nickel. Uh, who, depending who you are, you love him or hate him. But Dean Nickel, Dean Nickel was the uh, dean of of the law school um, for two of my three years. He was my constitutional law professor, and um, it was. I remember being in the car. I had you know started working with Can, and he was on his book had either just come out or was getting ready to come out, and he was on uh, you know Frank Stacio's on the state of things, mm -hmm. and. Uh, Dean Nickel was making this observation about how you know we often think about poverty as being like in the Eastern part of the state or like in Appalachia, you know, the Western part of the state, but that in North Carolina, some of the most, when you look at by census tracts, some of the most severe poverty was in the middle of downtown Raleigh, in the middle of downtown Durham, in the middle of downtown Greensboro, you know, all these larger cities. And it was, this light bulb went off because it so affirmed what I had been seeing and experiencing, mm. which was like this dissonance of, um, you know, how, Folks in Durham, depending on their social locations, were having way different experiences of Durham. And so I got copies of the book and had Dean Nickel come to our retreat. And I think that that period of time kind of started this, started us down this journey of being really, really intentional about addressing race in a way that I don't think Can had um, prior to that. And I'm, and I'm really grateful because, you know, fast forward, you know, you know, another year um, and well, actually, let me, let me, let me rewind. I'm really grateful because that the issue of race came up, I think most saliently, saliently for us um, as an organization, when we were having conversations about the $95 million affordable housing bond. Mm. And the fact that the Fable Street projects was excluded from the funding from that bond that would go to fund the first five years of the Durham Housing Authority's redevelopment. And um, so naming those tensions and moving toward that discomfort was really important. And I think that's another aspect of 
anti-racism that is important to name is that, you know, that leaning into and that willingness to move toward discomfort as part of that process of dismantling racism, because I think that's why so, so often folks um, either choose not to, to kind of look or to pay attention or just kind of don't want, you know, don't want to think about it, you know, and that's what, that's what privilege affords you. Um, but I, I think, I hope that answered it. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's perfect. That's perfect. Uh, you know, I, I really, uh, you, you talk about, you know, poverty uh, almost as this impetus, this thing that was the, the motivator specifically where it was showing up. Um, and, you know, we as an organization is just space. We're always talking about, you know, the justice of space. And I would imagine that poverty pushes into what that justice can show up as and how, what it would look like. So, you know, thinking of that as, as, as a, um, as kind of an underliner an underlayment, if you will, you know, how have you defined something like just space or spatial justice? What does that look like? Cause it sounds like that's vast. That's the vast majority of the work that Durham can does. That's what I would imagine is uh, is your focus as it is, but how do you all, you know, if you were to sit and think about it intentionally now and, you know, articulate it just as cleanly as you did the definition of anti-racism for the organization, how does just space get defined as well? Mm. I think just space is space that honors the, the dignity uh, and the humanity of the, the folks that occupy it. Mm. And I'm gonna take a step back and then come back to that question about, you know, how do you define um, anti-racism and how does CAN define anti-racism? Because, you know, going back to the kind of the origins of Durham CAN and being connected to this Alinsky style approach to organizing, like the fact of the matter is that 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 legacy is rooted in was rooted and kind of um, developed largely by white um, kind of European ethnic men. Right. Um, and right. so I straddle this really interesting fence, for lack of a better term, in terms of like, that's the the kind of the legacy of the organization, but then I'm, I'm the product of the struggle for Black liberation in the South, yeah, right? Yeah. And so, you know, folks like, you know, Ella Baker and, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, are, are um, these, you know, these guideposts for me. And so kind of holding those intention has been, I think, a lot of my my formation as an organizer. What informs me, how I'm being shaped, how that shows up in in my my work, and how I organize and think about organizing, and, and I think frames the way that I approach the work differently than some of some of my colleagues. The other thing I thought about was I was recently talking to a friend about that iconic scene from um, Spike Lee's Malcolm X when um, Denzel Washington, who's playing Malcolm X, is in prison, and you know the dictionary scene. Oh yeah, yeah, God, yep, 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 yep. Such mm-hmm. good cinema. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we also have to acknowledge before you go too far the scene where they're outside the jail for you know the, where the the police officers like no one man <laughs> should have that much power. <laughs> that scene also is one of the ones that like shakes me to the core. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, so you're talking I, about the dictionary I've been scene. Thinking though. about that scene in terms of just 
going back to the question about like, how do you define anti-racism? And I think one of the reasons why there's that discomfort is because part of whiteness is this assumption that you're pure, like you literally like a purity to everything. Everything that you do is pure. Mm -hmm. So anytime that that Mm -hmm. that narrative is interrupted, um, whether by another white person, black person, it's like this, it's like this, uh, this reaction, like that, like a being like attacked in terms of your very personhood is intact because you have bought into this lie that your whiteness uh, connotes uh, on you just universal goodness, pure intention, uh, you know, um, never being wrong, always, you know, uh, yeah, always right. And so Mm -hmm. I think anti-racism inherently requires people to interrupt that narrative. Wow. Uh, it's funny that you would say that because uh, I was just reading, um, I was rereading a couple different pages last night of uh, Amai Cesar's um, mm. discourse on colonialism, where he's specifically talking about the barbarism that white individuals have to go through to be able to finally get to the brutalization mm. of other humans mm. and accept it as just a part, uh, part and parcel of the way in which the world works. Um, and so you talking about that, like, you know, it, it, whiteness basically bestowing on you this purity and this goodness and this whatever, while also this other dissonance coming into play where, you know, to be quote unquote good, you mm-hmm. have to ignore, overlook, wow. disavow the things that you have been doing and or have yeah. been complicit in doing yeah. that have benefited you to be able to be seen as the mm. resident expert, yeah. you know, so on, so on, yeah. so forth. So yeah, that that's a, that's a very beautifully framed way to kind of get at this. And I also want to come back to, I really love how you define uh, just space as space that honors the dignity of the people that occupy it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, so, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I spent most of my legal career working for the U S department of transportation um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the mm. John A. Volpe National Transportation System Center. And John Volpe was the son of uh, Italian immigrants and he was governor of Massachusetts. He was secretary of transportation under Nixon. And the campus that mm. the center is on used to be part of NASA. And then President Johnson moved NASA to Texas oh, for wow. obvious reasons and left this empty <laughs> left this empty campus, you know, in Kendall <laughs> Square right by MIT vacant. And so John Volpe was like, let's turn this into a transportation research center. And so... Um, so I worked there mm. and really got this amazing kind of education in and seeing the intersections of, kind of civil rights in transportation and how that shows up. And so I noticed things like bus shelters and like why the bus shelters right. in certain parts right. of town look real, you know, just yep. <laughs> run down and others don't. I noticed yep. things like crosswalks you know, where there are crosswalks and where there aren't, you know, yeah. why is it that you got to, you know, there's, you know, I call them goat trails, but you know what I'm saying? Where there's no sidewalk or a sidewalk that just randomly ends, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't make any sense. And so, you know, um, I think about, and obviously highways and, you know, where they go and where they don't go and how 147, you know, bent around certain buildings, but then plowed through others, you know, is a reflection of yeah. a certain yeah. philosophy and a certain, um, you know, particularly a certain racialized um, philosophy about who, who, what communities were expendable and which weren't. Um, and so right. Um, right. I have a, a, one of my interns, Erin Light, um, she's a Durham native, Jordan High School grad, and she's taking a gap year from her studies 
the University of Southern California in architecture. And so this is this is like her jam. So she's the one who's been my spatial justice Sherpa, um, which I really appreciate because hmm. she brings that perspective into even so many of our actions. Um, like we were our criminal justice That's reform awesome. action team was meeting. And I can't even remember what we were talking about, but that the, that action team has been really focused on kind of keeping an eye on what's happening at the Durham County um, Jail during COVID and, you know, actions with um, Sheriff Burkhead and uh, DA DeBerry. And, you know, she was just kind of reflecting on like how architecture and design shows up in prisons, right? And like, again, how that's reflected and just things I hadn't really thought about before in certain contexts. Um, And I think going to kind of uh, just space, I mean, I think that's why so much of the work, particularly when I reflect on um, the work related to the Durham Housing Authority, we last year um, the East uh, there's a there was a documentary that came out called called East Lake Meadows, and we watched it together um, as a group, and we actually had a discussion about it with leaders from the Durham Housing Authority Board of Commissioners, um, the CEO, and I think there may have been some staff there, um, and it was so scary how eerily similar. I'm telling you, no, like, oh, no. Michael, if you watch that film, even the like the same architect, like I literally thought they cheated and like came to McDougal Terrace and shot footage at McDougal Terrace and used it for the film. Like that's how similar wow. it was. Um, but the same issues in wow. terms of just, it's not even just the, you know, the disrepair issues in terms of what's going on inside the units, but it's like the fact that it was you often, because of what the type of housing that was being built and who was living there, you know, folks who would use cheaper materials, you know, that wouldn't last as long. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that the land mm-hmm. that a lot of these places were built on were like some of the worst, you know, the poorest conditioned land or the way that it sloped yeah. was prone to flooding, you know, prone to sewage back, back, backups or built on, um, sites that had been, you know, contaminated by, you know, leaks and things like that mm-hmm. um, in the, in the, in the, in the mm-hmm. earth and the ground. Um, and so I think that think zooming out in terms of when I think about space and all the ways that it shows up um, and how that intersects with race, um, I'm definitely trying to get a, an expanded kind of way of, of how I, how I think about that. So it's been, it's been, yeah, right. an eye opening. And then for Can, you know, I mean, the biggest, the biggest uh, image of how race, racism, whiteness, and white supremacy shows up around space in Durham is the Fayetteville Street projects. Um, so that that vacant, yes. that vacant yes. land, which, um, you know, I actually I was thinking about this about how the first time I actually saw the Fayetteville Street projects um, is, and I'll, I'll make a note about language. So we. Um, we refer we're going to, we refer to that site even though I know that the projects are no longer there because the people we know in the community still refer to it as Fable Street Projects. We've decided that that's how we're going to refer to it. I know some people refer to it as Fayette Place, um, but so just in terms mm-hmm. of uh, uh, just that. Um, but uh, the first time I saw it was actually when I was taking a class at CDS, and uh, we were doing huh. that um, uh, uh, Aya Shabu with Whistle Stop Tours was you know giving our group a tour. Mm-hmm. And we were walking along Fable Street. So I didn't even realize how big it was. Like I couldn't see, I guess where we were standing, I couldn't see how far it went, you know, back like towards the freeway. Um, but even then I wonder, right. when I think back to that moment, I wonder why I didn't have a stronger reaction. You know, why wasn't I more outraged? Why wasn't I angrier? Like all the ways in which we've internalized 
these expectations of mm-hmm. like, oh, well, this is, you know, whatever the hood, this is what, you know, this, like, we've just, like, why have we come to accept things in certain communities that we wouldn't accept otherwise? And I, I mean, obviously that's it's all tied up in race. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's just, it's social conditioning mm. and, and assimilation. I mean, both of those things, you know, we, to your point, like we've been told this is what it's supposed to manifest as. And then we've been told to be mm. like our white counterparts. So the the amount of self-harm that that inflicts upon black and brown bodies that have internalized those things you don't even realize that you should be devastated yeah so yep yeah yeah so it's it's funny though that you you had previously interacted with that space outside of the context of your work um or shall i say in while wearing a different hat yeah yeah, it was almost like foreshadowing. I had no idea when I there that I, how yeah. how significant that that place would become. Yeah, in my life, I am curious. That was a perfect segue into this question of you know, what do you see the role of the university ensuring spatial justice is created? Because that was the CDS class. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I think that one is for a university to see itself as like a responsible party in the work, right? Like not just kind of over here on the side doing our thing, whatever, but like seeing itself as part of understanding how it has been part of the problem and therefore it has to be part of the solution. And emphasis on part, meaning that you are coming to a table with other folks and, you know, as a participant, as opposed to, you know, some type of kind of more like top down, you know, edict, you know, this is what we're going to do kind of approach. Right. I think that a university, one of the, I think one of the beautiful things that a university can do in ensuring justice is created is being that space, being that mediating institution where that brings people together who otherwise might not ever meet or know each other. And then that creates and spurs movements. It creates and spurs ideas. It creates and spurs, um, you know, things that could, actually counteract the damage, you know, that's been done in a community. Um, Again, going back to Cannes, you know, origins, you know, like, you know, how important Duke as a space was for bringing together these students, clergy, alums to begin imagining, wow, what would look like for us to build power and to see, see a different, a different story in Durham. Um, You know, one of the things that has surprised me so I've got three interns right now. Um, TJ uh, Bryant, who's at uh, who's a first year MDiv at Duke Divinity. Erin, who I mentioned, who's on her gap year from USC, studying architecture, uh, Durham native, Jordan High grad, and then Rachel Hefner, who is doing her field ed with us. She's a um, senior BSW student at Meredith. Um, she attended North Carolina School of Science and Math, so she lived in Durham while she was there. And what has shocked me yeah, is how all exactly. three of them who all have some connection to Durham or Duke have never heard about Haiti. Didn't know about Fable Street projects. Wow. Didn't know about 147. And I'm like, wow. what are they teaching you people? <laughs> right. But like, exactly. I was exactly. shocked. I still exactly. am shocked. I, I just, I remember yeah. asking Aaron like, yeah. yeah, so they teach you this at school at George? She's like, no. And I was just like, and so I think to the question, um, the role of the university hopefully through, you know, this and other um, actions can be amplifying a broader narrative of, of 
the reality of the space that it that it, it is in. Well, and the peoples mm-hmm. that it's displaced mm-hmm. to have that space. Um. So, I, I, all right. So, I really we could spend all this time on this conversation of university responsibility and things of that nature. But I, I do want to take a, a a quick moment to kind of jaunt over, um, and start to establish a, a better understanding of the history of the ninety five million dollar bond. Um, that kind of that happened back in November of 2019. Um, can you can you walk us through that that bond a little bit and how it's supposed to be used? I know it's supposed to show up in tandem, if I'm not mistaken, with 65 million more dollars from federal and local funding sources for affordable housing in the community, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so, you know, I, if you could kind of talk us through that a little bit, and what are the commitments that uh, Mayor Shul and City Council have, you know, have committed to? Uh, with relation to how that money is supposed to show up in the Durham yeah. community. So I think, so I'll, I'll answer that, I guess, through my specific lens. Um, I, Perfect. my introduction to the bond, um, like many was, uh, I guess that would have been maybe January, February, 2019. Um, I had started working with CAN around MLK uh, junior weekend. And uh, around that time, had also been invited to hear a presentation that uh, the Durham Housing Authority CEO, Mr. Anthony Scott, was giving um, at one of our member institutions, First Presbyterian Church, about the DDNP, which is the Downtown Durham Neighborhood Plan. And it's the plan that the DHA has uh, to redevelop all of its properties over the next decade. So, you know, DHA is in an interesting position in that it owns lands in a lot of areas of Durham that are now, um, you know, really um, are attracting, uh, let's say, uh, development opportunities. And um, right. so I was listening to this presentation and at a certain point, Mr. Scott mentioned how there was a, a 60% unemployment rate amongst work-abled adults living in DHA communities. So I clearly was like, I know he, that is not, he, he, he misspoke. So I was like, excuse me. <laughs> Did you just say 60, 60? He said, yes. <laughs> I thought, my goodness, like the height, in, the height of unemployment during the Great Depression was like 24, 25%. And this was at a time when, yep. this was back in 20, early 2019. So at that time, there was relatively low unemployment, you know, kind of nationwide and locally. And so I thought, how is that, how is this the same Durham? Like that we have all these jobs and all this growth. Mm-hmm. And then we have like this highly concentrated, right, unemployment crisis. <clears throat> and so, and then as I began to get to know CAN and I began to get to know um, our member institutions and, you know, the historical relationships that a lot of them had had in DHA communities, I began to question whether we were building relationships of mutuality, whether we were really understanding like what the concerns were that folks had versus just dropping, you know, dropping off a book bag or a hot dog or, you know, um, which very well be what right. someone wants or needs, but maybe it could be different. Um and so right. shortly after that, around that time was when Mayor Shul announced the $95 million affordable housing bond. And as we began to, you know, look at this, you know, I mean, my first reaction was like, oh my God, this is going to be like the most transformative thing to happen, particularly for the DHA communities because of the money uh, that from the bond that was uh, earmarked to go to the Durham Housing Authority uh, to support its redevelopment efforts for first five years. So I'm like, all right, this is like, this is going to be transformative. Right. Like, you know, this is significant. And as we began to dig into the plan, I still, I will never forget sitting at Monument of Faith Church 
uh, pastored by Bishop Laney. And I think it was around March. And you could kind of, it was like that moment where people realized, particularly for that, that, so that it was basically, it was an info session about the plan. And so you had a lot of folks right. who are from, so Monument of Faith is uh, in the Haiti community, right, right near, you know, um, Fable Street uh, projects. And you could just kind of see and hear the growing, just like disappointment as people realized like the Fable Street projects was not included in the bond. It was just like this, wait, so, wow. you know, and then things that the community has been asking for, like a grocery store, um, right? right? Not really, um, not prioritized, I should say. And so we, that we became very, it became very apparent that, that was the case. And considering that Durham Cans organizing is what led the city to give the Durham Housing Authority the money to buy back that land from a Philadelphia developer who decided they no longer wanted to develop that land. Mm-hmm. Um, we view that as a significant um, missed opportunity, right? To right the wrongs right. and the legacy right. of unkept promises to right. particularly his, our historically African-American communities in Durham. And so, um, right. So that was, gosh, spring. Um, and we know that those communities know what yes. the promises were. And which yes, promises and I'm so glad kept. you said that. I mean, folks got receipts. So even like the plan yes. that is being shot by the Durham Housing Authority, folks will notice it's very like rental heavy. I believe, I believe there's some, yes. I believe maybe in the JJ project, there's a few home ownership opportunity, first time homeowner opportunities, but it's very, very rental heavy. And we asked, cause we were like, well, why was, why was Fable Street projects excluded? And so we were um, told, oh, it was a market study. We did a market study. Like, all right, we want to see the study. And we waited and we waited and we waited. <laughs> we waited like, where's the study? Where's the study? <laughs> like you just made this big old decision about $95 million based on market study that we, nobody's seen. Like, hold up, like what? And so finally we get the study right. and you know, um, you know, maybe some people don't know this, but part of a market study, like the, the, a market study is not necessarily an objective document. It's it's framed by certain parameters. And so if you're a city that's trying to generate right. revenue from commercial or from rental or from, you know, whatever, like that frame, like you're framing what the market study is, quote, you know, going to say. And it was a market study that, you know, reflected, you know, lots of people who are moving into Durham and rentals and things like that. But when you talk to like, um, you know, Ms. Brenda, Ms. Pam and Ms. Joanne and Ms. Vivian, um, who are leaders, of, you know, over on Grant Street, whose families have been in that community for generations, they're like, no, we were promised homes. Like when 147 came through, that was the promise, right? To replace like home, single family, homes, houses, homes, ownership, equity, you know? And so even... To your point, even the plans that, you know, are kind of put forth as like the plans calls into question, well, how valid are these plans if they actually don't reflect what the community has articulated that it wants to see? And to your point, like what was promised? Like whose plan is this? And to your point from way earlier when we were talking about this idea of experts coming into a space and having the quote unquote key, but never talking to the people who are actually in the space, you know, I feel like you could easily pass this off as, well, these were the smart folks that told us what we should do. So we're going to follow their actions. Yeah. And sometimes people are wrong. Right. Well, and it also allows you a, 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 a bit of cover because the city doesn't have to say that they were, the city can say like, Hey, you know, we went to these other folks. These are the resource people who they, they know what's good for us. They know what's good for us rather than knowing that the community knows what's best for itself. 
Yeah. And I think particularly, again, going back to like the importance of having a democratic society, like I think to the extent that exactly. you are still open, because again, I don't want the, I don't want people to, to, and I don't, you know, we don't approach things as like, we don't like experts. We don't like research. We don't like market studies. We don't like data. Like I, you know, you know, publicly available, transparent data is my love language. Like I'm, you know, I think that's all important, (laughs) but I think when you, when you, when you rely on that to the exclusion of, you know, the social intelligence of a community and of history, you know, then that's what becomes problematic and it becomes very undemocratic, you know, like, you know, the bond itself, when you look at the numbers in terms of, um, you know, registered voters and the people that voted and who voted for the bond. I mean, you're actually only looking at 13.6% of the Durham electorate that voted in favor for the bond. But it's, but the, but, but it's, but, you know, you know, what comes out is, oh, is this overwhelming, you know, this overwhelming decision. And so I think, again, I just, I'm always going to err on the side of pushing for, you know, (laughs) democracy, (laughs) you know, and, um, And yeah. uh, folks who are going to be the most impacted by these decisions having agency. I mean, I think to be good, to be a, to be effective and good in this work, you have to fundamentally believe that people have the ability to guide their lives, and that means you have even if they make mistakes, mm. even if they do things differently than you you would do. Um, like you have to believe that fundamentally. And my concern is that sometimes there's a sense in which you feel like either certain folks are talking to people like they're stupid or like they're not going to understand or, Oh, it's too complicated. Mm. And the fact of the matter is a lot of, a lot of, you know, (laughs) a lot of our neighbors often will know more than certain, you know, or have done the reading, you know, more than some of the officials that are pushing things. Um, And so I think that there has to be that, that balance in, in understanding the valuing and including um, those voices. I mean, I think about the DHA redevelopment and, and one of the HUD requirements. Uh, so the program that the Durham Housing Authority is using is RAD, which is the Rental Assistance Demonstration, which really focuses on leveraging mm-hmm. private investment to uh, to re- redevelop uh, communities. And in the case of Durham, they're going to be you know higher higher density, mixed use, mixed income. And so part of the thrust is breaking up um, what's referred to as you know kind of concentrations of of quote unquote concentrations of poverty. And, um, but one of the, one of the, the essential parts of these plans is, you know, feedback from residents, DHA residents, because again, right. there, a lot of them are going to be impacted. And so not seeing that happen right. again, going, same going back to the same kind of comment with the DDMP is like, well, whose plan is this? And, you know, if these folks haven't been a part of it, then, then how, what's, how, how, legi- how legitimate of a plan can we, can we say it is, you know, particularly if that's actually a, like a HUD, right. you know, federal requirement. How much of the bond is, or at least the, the market development for it, how much of it is predicated on the attraction of things like the Obama administration's yeah. opportunity zones? Hotel. Yes. So <laughs> I've totally forgot. I'm glad you said something. I forgot. So the Fable Street projects are one of, I believe, seven opportunity zones in Durham. So can, real quick, before you go too far into can you define what that is for our listeners, please? I will do my best. So an opportunity zone are, opportunity zones are locations that I believe each state get, got to decide where those locations were. So I'm assuming, you know, Governor Cooper or folks in the Cooper administration um, made decisions about um, 
where these zones were located. But the idea conceptually is that these are areas that are viewed as having, you know, quote unquote, low investment or not a lot of investment, you know, in the community. And the idea is to essentially give people the ability to write off capital gains taxes by instead of instead of paying what they're paying capital gains tax, they can take that money and put it towards um, uh, development or investment in one of these regions that, you know, are identified by the state. So Fayetteville Street Projects is one of those um, over in um, Southeast Raleigh. Um, I believe the site where the, um, I can't remember what they, they're calling it now, but with the soccer field and all that, or stadium, mm-hmm. I believe that's also mm-hmm. an Opportunity Zone project. Um, I've been working on a, a documentary project out in Rocky Mount, um, and it just so happens that the area where um, the, the person I've been documenting with um, works, it was also an Opportunity Zone project. So it's... Um, it essentially creates an incentive for folks to who would otherwise be paying capital gains taxes to invest that in um, in redevelopment um, in under uh, underinvested communities, and so I think the concern about opportunity zones comes into play in terms of like, well, then what what happens after you let's say you have someone who decides to invest. X amount of dollars, let's say, in the redevelopment of full street projects, well, then who's calling the shots, right? Like who's making the decisions right. about what happens on that land? And then how do you maintain um, an obligation for the residents to be at the table? So with regard to this, you know, we're, we're ultimately having a large conversation about substantial affordable housing being available uh, in large quantity in the city of Durham. Um, and that's what this bond is supposed to be doing, but I would imagine, you know, you're, we have this initial complaint, uh, and substantial complaint from Durham residents, um, saying like, Hey, one of the large housing spaces is not being considered for this bond. I would imagine that there are other missed opportunities for supporting folks that have happened or that are included or not included within the scope of this $95 million. Yeah. I mean, you know, the challenge is that at least I think the the argument has been, we need to do the bond because essentially the federal government for years, decades has not been funding public housing programs in, you know, a way that can sustain, um, sustain them, can sustain habitability requirements, repairs, maintenance, et cetera. But the pitch has been that we need the bond because particularly for the DHA projects. And I want to say, let me take a step back. There are a lot of good things in the bond. I want to be clear about that too. Um, And so there are a lot of things in the bond that, that, uh, that are good. um, But the exclusion of Fable Street projects, particularly for Durham Cam was a particular, um, particular issue. But anyway, going, going back forward, um, but, you know, the pitch has been that the funding th- from the bond is what's going to be needed in order to address all of these longstanding maintenance issues, um, which many of us have come to know better than we would like to um, because of our organizing work with residents at Hoover Road and the resident inspection that they did in 2019, as well as just, um, I mean, kind of, I mean, what unfolded at McDougal Terrace last December. Um, and then, um, or excuse me, no, that was December, 2019, excuse me. And right. then, um, even, and can you, can you briefly tell us just, a like a highlight of what happened? 
at McDougald. Yes. So um, what came out in the media was that I think it was right, probably right after Christmas, but essentially uh, I believe it was actually an EMT that noticed a significant number of people from the same area in the city who were reporting or showing up or showing symptoms of um, carbon monoxide exposure. And they, you know, triangulated that and realized it was coming from McDougal Terrace. And what I recall is that there was also, um, I think, a letter that the former city manager had sent to the CEO of the Durham Housing Authority that seemed to indicate that this was an issue that had been raised prior to December. Um, and so based off of uh, the DHA's, uh, the D- DHA did some more kind of um, looking, um, kind of inspections, and they decided to evacuate the, the, the entire community. Uh, so that they could, um, I think, figure out you know what the issues were, and also do some some repairs. It sounded my base the many of the leaks were have been thought to come from some you know old stoves, and so there was a bunch of um, replacement of the gas stoves and um, electrical work that had to be done. And um, so yeah, so you had a, a large community of of residents who were displaced and put in ho- to hotels um, last year. And those repairs um, have yet to be completed. Wow, wow! So you were you were kind of going down the list. I, the only reason I wanted to stop you is I, I I remember as a grad student hearing about this and being a part of the action to help and support as many of those displaced residents as we possibly could. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just wanted you to kind of talk about it, you know, from a from an eagle pers- eagle eye perspective, bird's eye perspective. Yeah kind of, of the, the greater thing. And I, and I just don't want to name the fact that that, so that happened. So that would have been like a month after the bond was passed, but right. I also wanted to lift right. up that three months prior to that in September, Durham can had held an action with Mr. Scott at Hoover road um, and brought up, there were actually um, a number of issues. Um, one was around evictions. Um, one was around specifically the court fees that are assessed to residents. Um, uh, when they're evicted and, and just the process DHA had used, but the other was around repairs. And we had seen the exact same, the exact same issues that kind of surfaced um, in, a, in, a, in the larger, I guess, consciousness of folks at, at McDougal Terrace, we had seen at Hoover road, you know, several months before. Mm. Um, mm. And so, um, yeah, so let's leave that there. That, that also goes, you know, against kind of the statement you were making about East Lake Meadows, the documentary and this, the direct similarities you know, um, one of those being, you know, things that get into utter disrepair that cause other other problems mm-hmm. that we could have solved mm-hmm. sooner. But because we use cheaper materials, you know, we're injuring folks. Yeah. Yeah. Or just yeah. Or just, you know, I mean, the other thing that people bring up is like the fact is that, you know, there were two public, you know, there, there are two public, large public housing buildings kind of built around the same time for one for whites, few gardens and one for blacks, McDougal Terrace, few gardens was torn down a while ago, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's the other, I mean, that's a very, I think, again, going back to the kind of whole topic of space and how that intersects with race. I mean, just that the visibility and the awareness of that, um, I think is something to consider. And I think that going back to the question about like the bond, I think one of the the challenge, the, one of the questions I've had is, so taking, taking that, um, 
taking that approach in terms of, you know, the federal government is basically, you know, getting out of the business of public housing and it's moving towards, you know, privatization and, you know, we need to leverage this private investment. But I think, but again, the, the bond only pays for the first five years of the um, redevelopment. And I just don't know that we as a community in good conscience can allow folks to continue living in some of the conditions that we're aware of, particularly our children. Like to me, that's like full stop. Um, And so, so the communities that are in that redevelopment plan for the first five years, but what about the larger, you know, communities that are not in that plan? So we're basically asking folks to live with certain things for another decade. And I think there's still some questions about seeing the math on exactly how the, the private investment generates the profit that then can be moved, you know, taken and moved, like seeing the, we, like there's still, yeah, questions about exactly how the plan works and plays out. And so um, I think, and the other part of this, and I think you've, you raised this is that the bond is just one part of a larger kind of investment that the public right. is making in the Durham housing authority, right? Um, it's right. the bond, right. but it's also other city funding, you know, um, funding that the city's already given DHA, um, it's low-income housing tax credits, you know. And it's interesting because, again, when we talk about the these issues, one of the things people talk about is the fact that the federal government isn't funding um, uh, public housing authorities, not pu- they're not funding, you know, um, public, public housing. But it's interesting that the approach that we're taking emphasizes, um, emphasizes, um, what's the word? It, it's incentivizing solutions that are incl- that are tax exempt. So we're talking mm. about tax credits. We're talking about bonds that are exempt from federal taxes, taxes that might otherwise go to fund HUD or go to fund public housing, yeah. right? So yeah, it's this yeah. really interesting question about well, who's benefiting from this particular like paradigm and approach? Because it's like between the opportunity zones and the tax credits and the bonds, it seems like if you're someone who has either capital gains tax that you're trying to avoid or investment money, you know, like from an investment kind of bent, like you sounds like you have some opportunity there, but it calls to question at whose expense. In your honest opinion, and I'm going to read this the way I wrote it (laughs) because there's a lot here. What are the equitable, civic, and anti-racist responsibility which a university like Duke that is rooted so deeply within Durham has to the wider Durham community with regards to supporting mandates and opportunities for substantial, dignified, affordable housing? And this is knowing that you know Duke brings in a ton of grad Absolutely. students that don't make a ton of money, and so they themselves benefit from the auspice of something like an affordable housing yeah. uh, Act for affordable housing access. So what are what are the things that from your perspective are things that Duke needs to be doing to support the community as a whole? Yeah. I mean, this makes me think about we talk about um in in our discipline of organizing about self-interest. And mm-hmm. often self-interest gets a bad rap, right? Because it sounds like super selfish <laughs> and like mm-hmm. I'm just about mm-hmm. me and mine. Um, but I think the magic of organizing is when is expanding this idea and the sense of self, right? And the relational work, connecting you to people, connecting you to communities to where you see that your well-being is tied to theirs, right? And right. even, you know, right. we teach that the the 
the, the, the root word of that word self-interest interesse means among and between. So it's this idea mm. that like mm. my, my, my sense of self is not separated from, you know, my, my self-interest are actually not just about me, but it's about how those interests are met among and between others. Right. And so right. I think that, um, what, I think what I'm trying to make sure I got with the question, <laughs> but I think you're good. The, we were talking about Duke's responsibilities to Durham. So among and between, yeah, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's uh, understanding and articulating its self-interest among and between everyone outside mm. of, you know, the, you know, the mm. kind of the, the formal Duke institution. Right. So understanding right. and seeing its well-being. Uh, to the community. It's funny that you brought that up about um, grad student housing, because I remember when we, one of the actions we had last year was around the Willard Street um, apartments. Um, mm-hmm. And so just to back, go a few years back, one of Can's um, actions was around pushing the city to build affordable housing on public land in close proximity to public transportation. And so it focused on wow. these various lots kind of in the, what's referred to as like the downtown core, one of them being the, the one right by the bus station where um, Willow Street um, apartments are, I think, almost done, actually. And so um, 505 West Chapel Hill Street is the former police headquarters, right next to Duke Memorial, which is one of our member institutions. And so, but also part of one of these lots of land that Can had identified of, you know, let's put, you know, let's push the city to choose a developer that's going to build affordable housing on public land, you know, in close proximity to transportation, you know, jobs, et cetera. And so um, in the conversations with, the developers, Fallon and Wynn, um, it's interesting, this very issue came up and it was clear that it, and it helped us actually expand our sense of self-interest, right? Like understanding, being sensitive to like, oh, wow, we hadn't thought about like the needs of certain students to have access to affordable housing, which is also the same as the access needs of public housing residents you know, to, to, to units that are, um, you know, well-maintained as well as to senior, you know, like to our teachers. I mean, I think that's been one of the sho- most shocking right. things for right. me is how many teachers I've talked to who've lamented about not being able mm-hmm. to live in the community where they teach. Yeah. And that's, I mean, and this is where we get into the, the problem of systemic uh, inequities relative to wages and things of that nature. Like if the cost of living exceeds more than i think I'm trying to remember what the 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 algorithm is but it was the cost of living should not exceed more than 25 percent mm-hmm. of your total take home for a month or with so when you have teachers who are having to work yeah. two and three yeah. jobs because the cost of living exceeds greater than yeah. 50 sometimes 75 percent for them to live close to where they actually teach to be in the community which we know research-wise yep. says that mm-hmm. if a student interacts yep. with their teacher That's outside right. of school, they are far mm-hmm. likely to do yep. better in school. So you are taking the educator out of the community and then still mandating that students mm-hmm. perform at higher levels. That's the first thing. We're overtaxing the teachers because we actually are requiring them to have mm-hmm. multiple jobs. And then lastly, they're not able to, to do the substantive teaching load work because they themselves are now having to figure out survival tactics. 
right? Like, even though maybe that teacher isn't necessarily, I mean, they may or may not be a student at Duke or alum or whatever, but like, see, like, sees right. those connections, right? Like, if Duke says, right. oh, we're, right. we're concerned about, you know, the community that we're in, we're concerned about, you know, the downstream impacts, you know, we're concerned about what's going on in DPS, we're concerned about what's going on with transportation, like seeing these connections, and understanding that the well being of the community is going to be attributable to its well being. Um, the other thing I thought about was, right. um, we have a sister organization in Baltimore, Build, and they um, they have been engaged in several actions over the years with uh, Johns Hopkins University, which kind of a sim- mm-hmm. not not the same, but kind of a similar relationship in terms of having this institution that is you know a, a significant employer, you know, proximate to um, you know certain neighborhoods in Baltimore um, that they wanted to see kind of have a stronger relationship, right, with 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 the university. And I, I'm thinking about this image I have, and I and I forgive me because I cannot remember the name of the president of Johns Hopkins. But one of my colleagues, like with the president of Johns Hopkins, door knocking, you know, in like East Baltimore, wow, and like talking to residents, you know, and having you know what we call probably like a a quick relational meeting. Um, but I think part of that that action of of expanding self interest is building those relationships across the community and hearing and listening and actually understanding like okay who is my neighbor. You know, like right, what, what right, are the interests? Right. Oh, thank you. President Ronald Daniels of Johns Hopkins. <laughs> yes, that is. From <laughs> um, but right. But seeing it, but in, you know, thinking about even um, like our jobs, living wage campaign was very much focused um, right. on, on building that, that type of relationship and support with Duke university with um, president price and Dr. Washington of the health system, you know, being such significant employers, um, how can how can Duke show up in a way that affirms the inclusion of folks who face some of the highest barriers to employment? And do we understand how that's a right. good thing, right? Like that that's good for our community. The conversation of what is good for a community and that being that conversation being rooted from the community's standpoint out rather than from the top down to decipher what is good. I think that's a, that's a whole nother, whole nother yeah. can of, can of worms that we could yeah, get it's into. Going again, but, it's, for me, this is always going back to democracy, <laughs> you know, like the right, fact, right, I mean, exactly. that is the work exactly. that we have to do is, you know, I mean, right. you know, you know, you and I, you know, Michael, you there are things that you want. There are things that I want. I'm not going to get what I want 100% of the time. You're not going to get what you want 100% of the time. And how we negotiate that right. in a way that doesn't result in, you know, uh, you know, staging a coup at the Capitol, right, is like, is is the work, you know, that we 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 have to do. Um, how do how we negotiate that? And to your, yeah, to your point, it's, it's among in between. It's, 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 it's understanding that, yeah, Duke is going to have certain interests in terms of, you know, what its purpose is, you know, financial, you know, people, bottom lines, et cetera. And, um, and then in the community is a very broad term. And even within the community, you have different interests, but that to your point, that should be, that needs to be a negotiation and a conversation and a discussion and a back and forth. Um, It's it's power. We teach about, you know, relational power being power with, as opposed as opposed to dominant right. power being do- power over, um, and so I think that's mm. that's what we want to see and to practice ourselves is is that power with, and so again, often that means 
going back to kind of what I was talking about before about the challenges of showing up in certain spaces, you know, as a lawyer is that often in that whole root word of advocate being voice, but like often it's not about being someone's voice. So you just need to pass them the damn mic and let them, you know, speak. And so, and so even in, and I think if this work isn't changing us as people and causing us to pause and to reflect and to understand where we got to step back or we need to, you know, there should be someone else that should be, you know, in this space or speaking, you know, to this issue or whose experience and story should be centered, like being aware of that and, and, and naming that. And, um, exactly, exactly. Um, okay. So I always love to ask these kinds of questions. Uh, the, if this was (laughs) happening, what would you do? What would you say? It's one of my favorites. Um, and then I guess the follow-up to that is kind of how, what, what mandate would you leave for folks? But, uh, so if president price or mayor Steve Shul called into this recording session right now and said, anything you say in the next 15 minutes, Duke and Durham will partner to make it a reality. What are you telling them? Hmm. I would invite them both to um, come with me and leaders from Durham can to the next session of eviction court. Because I think if you want to see systemic racism in Durham, it's there. Um, I think that I would um, tell them that there is a significant focus on understand on framing on really really planning for how to deal with some of these severe disrepair issues in DHA that um, the Durham Housing Authority communities that the the city needs to invest in. Um, I would say that there needs to be a reprioritization of the affordable housing bond um, spending plan and phasing. Um, And I know it's a little counterintuitive uh, because it's kind of going to get your question, but I actually would probably do more listening than I would telling. Um, You know, one, I would invite them to um, meet. I'd probably invite them, practically speaking, I'd probably invite them to, you know, um, a gathering of leaders and residents whether it's our clergy council or our metro council or um, Thursday meeting that we have with DHA leaders um, and invite them into listening to, to, you know, to a broader, um, a broader spectrum of our community. And I would also listen to them and understand who right. they are and their motivation and their self-interest and what's important to them. And, you know, why of all the things you could be doing with your life, you know, are you a university, pre- do you choose to be university president or why, you know, do you choose to be a mayor, you know? And, um, right. Right. and so that's where I would, that's where I would start. So with that in mind, what is, what are the mandates? You know, you've got, you, you've got folks listening right now. What are, what are you asking them? You know, if you were going to mm. say this one or two actions that you can do would be really beneficial to both the Duke Durham community, um, yourself, whatever, what are, what are those, uh, what, hmm. what might they be? Well, I was, I'll say one really practical thing. And I wanted to say it as a way to also affirming the, the work that so many folks in Durham, in addition to Durham can are doing is I would um, encourage folks, if you haven't to read the racial equity task force report that came out um, last mm. year, um, just really comprehensive that in that also, and I applaud the work of that task force and the recommendations, um, because that report really, I feel like kind of coalesces 
like a lot of different things that have been going on and issues that people have been talking about for a long time, you know? And um, mm -hmm. so, so if you have it, I, I encourage you just as a way of background, particularly if maybe you're newer to Durham um, or um, maybe newer to thinking about kind of housing or, or, or want to, you know, inform kind of your thoughts about spatial justice. Um, Cause there's some, some really great recommendations, particularly focused on housing and, and space. Um, so that's one. Um, it's really challenging to answer that in COVID times because I want to like yeah, no, balance <laughs> um, everyone's, uh, you know, taking the precautions they, they need to in terms of their, their, their health and individual decisions. Um, I mean, I think one of the, I mean, the two most transformative things for me, and I, I would imagine um, folks working with us have been um, our proximity to the communities that we organize with. And so whether that's the conversations and the one-on-ones and the relational meetings with our neighbors um, and being in the space, being in spaces that, you know, are beyond kind of the two mile radius within which we live our lives, you know, kind of day to day. So actually going back to prior question about President Price and Mitchell Colden, I think I'd also extend them an invitation um, to, um, you know, extend them, thinking back about that picture um, with President Daniels at Johns Hopkins and my colleague talking to residents, I would invite them into those spaces, whether they're virtual or, you know, uh, physically distant outdoors. But, um, but, but so anyway, I think I kind of said that in the answer, but I just, I was just kind of, imagining that in my mind. But um, right, right. I think that um, one of the things that I appreciate about being um, the lead organizer in Durham can is that I don't have the luxury to not understand the history of the place in which I organize. Mm. And I think that if, if, you know, in addition to reading the racial equity task force um, report, which I think kind of brings people to speed kind of in terms of current date, I think really understanding the history of where you are is so important. I remember when I first, when I moved back to North Carolina after we'd been in Boston for seven years and sitting down with someone who, and that's what she, she said, you know, she's like, uh, people, you need to understand that there, and it wasn't in Durham, it was another, another part of um, North Carolina, but she was like, you need to understand that there's a community that has been here for years and you need to know them. You know, you need to know that you need to get to, right. to know them. And so I, I would say the same thing, for Durham, um, going back to that observation about my interns having never, you know, never, you know, heard about Fable Street Projects, Hey Tai, One Forty Seven, etc. Um, I wonder if just that that baseline histor historical context can kind of help explain some of the current day dyna dynamics. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then, in terms of action, if you are part of an institution, any type of beloved community institution. Definitely check out Can and you know give us a give us a try if you'd like, um, um, <laughs> because I think one of the things that's really important to me is like for people to see themselves in organizing no matter like what mm. what their background mm. is or what they do. I think sometimes there's this thing that you're, you, people think like to be an organizer, you just like I don't know, wake up punching in the air, you know, every morning. But one right, of the right. one of the joys of my work have have been seeing people bring their full selves to the work. So no matter if you're a, mm. you know, a statistician or a general contractor or, um, you know, a microbiologist 
or, you know, um, you, you have a food struggle, whatever, like seeing a, a place for yourself in the work um, has been really, right. has been really uh, important, important to me. Um, and so I think in terms of action, I would say follow, like follow, um, follow your curiosity. Like if you are interested in housing, maybe sit in on the next DHA board meeting or committee meeting, or maybe sit in mm-hmm. on the next city council meeting and just kind of observe and like see what's going on. Um, have a, you know, have a phone. I know I feel like phone calls are so radical right now because everything's on Zoom. <laughs> You're not. And I can joking. get so much, man. This stuff I can get responses to when I call people now that I'm like, oh, well, I'm just going to call you from now on. Um, the email is a black hole. So it's like, yeah, I emailed you about that. They're like, yeah, uh, yeah, I haven't seen it. Yeah, no, let me just go, let me just follow up. And in, in, in an hour, I'm yep. like, oh, look at this. Um, yep. But um, yeah, having, you know, inviting someone into a conversation about, um, you know, their experience, whether it's someone who's on, you know, the board of commission, the DHA board of commissioners or on the affordable housing implement, the affordable housing bond implementation committee, or maybe one of the members of the racial equity task force, um, uh, you know, one of your elected or appointed officials, one of your neighbors that, you know, is really involved um, in, in things going on in the community, right. your roommate. Um, so, yeah. Assuming that's, you know, <laughs> you like your roommate, um, <laughs> or even right, if you right, don't right. like your roommate, y'all you figure it out. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, again, like a lot of people see cans work as like the 600 people, you know, in a large, usually, um, you know, church or, you know, sanctuary or something or a temple, but none of that happens without the one-on-one, like that foundational, just right. one-on-one relational meeting, like the one-on-one conversations, meetings, um, understanding who people all people are, understanding their stories, understanding how we're connected, even though, you know, we think we're so different and couldn't have anything in common. Um, I'm always amazed. Right. You know, one of the things that we teach is about not one of the things that's that's that one of the kind of the things that I've learned in documentary work that serves me in organizing is this whole thing about suspending judgment. And I feel like there've been, when I reflect on all these relational meetings that I've had where I go in judging, you know, (laughs) making certain assumptions and by the end of it, I'm like, oh my God, I had no idea, you know? And, um, and so I think being, and I think also the most important relational meeting that you have is the ones you have with yourself, you know? And so I think, you know, all the outer work and outer change that you want is great, but like understanding who you are and what your self-interest is and who you, who you are, where did you come from? Who did you come from? You know, how have you been framed? Um, How do you show up in the world? Uh, What's important to you? What do you care about? What makes you angry? What grieves you? Why? Mm. You know, that's Mm. the most important you know, foundational part of the work. No, I, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, Tinu, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you today. Thank you for, thank you for the invitation. Anything else you might want to, sh- you know, steer us toward, elaborate on, or generally talk about regarding Durham Cairns initiatives towards affordable housing or things that you think that the city of Durham or Duke University should be doing in general. Is there anything else you can think of that you want to share with us? So I, I just, so there's three things actually. Um, and they're all kind of, I think they came up because I'm thinking about, I think I think, so it's, so, you know, I became a lead in, let's see, November, 2020. 
and or excuse me, November 2019. I can't, this whole year change has got me mixed. You know, I'm still catching up on my language. Yeah, no, you're good. And, um, you know, we began 2020 setting out with uh, 2020 being a year of disorganizing and reorganizing can. So one of the things things that we teach is all organizing is disorganizing and reorganizing. And in light of, you know, the transition of my leadership, the, you know, specific emphasis that we're having around race, racism, whiteness, and white supremacy, um, and, you know, just some like shifts that we want to make in the organization, we had kind of like, kind of ventured out and then COVID, right? And so it was then this like meta disorganizing and reorganizing because we were doing it as an organization. And then we were figuring out like, how do you organize in a pandemic, you know? And when so much of our work mm-hmm. is so like visceral and in person and heart to heart and soul to soul and, you know, eyeball to eyeball um, in terms of connecting with people. And um, I think right. we've adapted and we've, you know, pivoted and I'm, I'm, you know, I think considering what has happened, what happened uh, in 2020, it's, it's actually been amazing. And what I'm thinking about is just, it's interesting, so, you know, Durham, the county and the city have this recovery and renewal task force. And those two words came up, you know, in terms of like, kind of what, what are we going to look like as a community post COVID in terms of our renewal and our recovery? And, you know, several of our clergy leaders have been involved in the task force as well as um, a specific kind of clergy focused group that's focused on like houses of worship and how, you know, they're trying to navigate all things COVID. And um, as I think about that, what I would um what, what I would like to see happen in terms of CAN and the city in Durham are around three things. Um, one is just thinking about how um, COVID, the, 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 so we, we launched a jobs and living wage campaign a few years ago. And again, that was really focused on Duke, mm. particularly being, you know, the largest employer in the area, as well as other large employers or employers that have gotten tax incentives uh, in Durham to you know, lower the barriers to employment to folks facing the highest barriers, usually those who have some type of um, criminal record. And um, mm-hmm. thinking about the domino effect of COVID on you know, just unemployment and on that campaign, right. I think uh, working towards building, thinking about what it would look like to build a jobs movement and to see people who are you know, from Durham, educated in Durham, you know, be like, how do we, I guess, zooming back out, like, how do we, I'm thinking about a talk I heard years ago in Boston. And this woman made this comment about how she felt that exclusion was the driver of most conflict in the world. And it was like this really, you know, Mm -hmm. salient and poignant observation. And so I thought about how, you know, Durham be, don't say how Durham bees, how <laughs> but oh, I, it is true. Durham bees but doing how, stuff, right? So, but know? like, how do we ensure with the growth, with the 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 forward movement, with the development that we're including as many folks as we can, and seeing that we have talent mm. here, you know, seeing that we have, um, yeah, that we have, you know, people here. It's not about someone coming here from Silicon Valley with their tech company. I mean, it might be, but we can also. Um, we can also support and facilitate that here um, with, with, with right. folks already in our community. Um, so, sorry, that was a little bit of a, a rabbit trail. So uh, building a job, no, building a jobs no, movement, um, 
creating a different way to approach um, evictions, which is another issue that, as I mentioned, um, based yep. off of because of yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it's an issue that's important to Congressman Price. It's an issue that Ken has worked, been working on. We started a court watching campaign um, in the fall of 2019, and um, yeah, that's been. I believe the mayor has referred to evictions as a crisis in Durham, and folks like Legal Aid and the Human Rights Committee of the city have looked at and researched and wrote about that. And um, then the third thing is the redevelopment of the Fable Street, Fable Street projects. Um, so how do we, um, how do we understand and center the community in the plans for that, that property and that redevelopment? Um, and so I think, and, and, pri- and again, and for me going back to, I think a pri- prior answer about the bond, how do we move that up in the priority list, right? For redevelopment. Right, um, right, so. right, right. Wow. That's, that is a lot. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, and it's fantastic though, that you, I mean, that's a very succinct, like these are three major things that if we're not doing, if we're not committing to making actions happen in these spaces, we're going to be having the same conversation in the, at the end of the five years, like we're going to be doing the same thing over and over again. And it's going to end up injuring further more people and have a larger impact. Like it's, you know, we're identifying where the beginning of the the inception point of the ripple, and there's a way to disrupt. There's a defined way to disrupt, and these these are the things you've laid out. Yeah, and and I think what we've noticed, I mean, all of our like up to this point, you know, our action teams have kind of worked, you know, done they're kind of just done their own thing. But I think this year in particular, this past year in particular, we've just seen this growing shift, like these tectonic plates, where you know our action teams have just seen, you know, the all the interconnections and you know, how, you know, the jobs right. and the housing and the Fable Street and eviction, like it's all tied in, it's all connected. And so, um, right. and I, again, going back to, you know, the theme of the conference and, you know, space, you know, it's, I think these are visual and real representations of how um, space in Durham can be more just. Um, what, you know, one last story, I was going back to like um, eviction court, the last time we were there, um, I want to say it was September, um, but I, um, you know, they, they, they have new COVID protocols. And so they kind of have, um, time session where they only let in a certain number of people at a time. And I remember was how we were, we were court watching and I walked into a courtroom and the, the judge looked at me and says, she says, what time is your case or what time is your hearing? And I'm like, who's she talking to? You know, <laughs> you know, obviously she was talking to me, wow. but I think the reason, right. the reason why is because I look like the vast majority of people getting evicted in Durham. I'm a black woman, exactly. you know? Exactly. And so mm-hmm. I just, um, I think when you've either, for, particularly if you've not been evicted, experienced an eviction, have someone that you love or that's close to you that's gone through that process, um, that you just, I think a lot of people just have no idea, you know? And, mm-hmm. um, but again, this is a question of, you know, is it in our interest as a community to ensure that we go about, you know, what, what is a legal process, but do it in a way right. that like, again, affirms the dignity, affirms, affirms folks' humanity and their dignity, right? Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Tinu, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we are eternally grateful uh, to both you and all of your interns and the folks at uh, Durham Can. 
Um, we will make sure that uh, for our listeners that your information is available for them to be able to find you quickly um, via your website. Is there any other contact information you want to drive folks to? Uh, I believe we're Durham Can on all the social media, so Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Um, yeah, and then our website. Yeah, that's about it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, again, you've been listening to The Space of Justice. I am Michael Betts, and we will see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Space of Justice. If you like what you heard today, be sure to stop by sites.duke.edu backslash JustSpace for the recording of this past year's Just Space Week. Duke University's conference centered entirely on the conversation of spatial justice. This year, Just Space was focused entirely on anti-racism, equity, and connecting Duke to Durham in meaningful and just collaborations. Head over to sites.duke.edu backslash justspace backslash conference to check out the recordings today. A very special thank you to Durham Can Executive Director Tinu Diver for taking time to talk us through the city of Durham's $95 million housing bond and how both Duke University and the citizens of Durham can show up to support affordable housing initiatives for all of those within the community. If you would like to find out more about the work of the Durham Congregations, Associations, and Neighborhoods Organization, you can find them at www.dermcan.org. Again, that's dermcan.org. Today's episode was logistically possible because of the brilliance of Elmo Oriana, Paige Vinson, and Lindsay Miller Furness. Our web presence is possible only because Tara Cardi makes it so. Francesca Santos and Matt Stark are the genius minds behind our assessments and analytics. To the fearless podcast team of editors and collaborators that consist of Sumaya Faison, Ling Jin, Ezra Uzan Mason, and Brian Lackman, as well as the Just Space Conference Chair, who's pulling double duty, Kevin Erickson, thank you. Thanks to Marcy Enfield's crew for making sure our equipment specs are just right. Just Space Conference Marketing is handled by the Illuminous, Sarah Neff, and Sam Babb's keen eye keeps us all looking perfect and synchronized. Catherine Lester Bacon and Victoria Krebs ensure our online learning design is tight. Jeff Nelson and Gina McCullers are the tireless captain and first mate of this Just Space Committee ship. Tasha Curry Corcoran is kind enough to ensure that the Office of Student Fairs at Duke University keeps us, the Just Space crew, going one more turn around the sun. Our theme song, Yuriba, is by Lasana Debete. Engineering and mix of today's episode, like always, is by yours truly. Be sure to check back every Tuesday for the next episode. A special non-sponsored shout out to Zencaster for making it possible for our team to do remote recording sessions safely while in an international health crisis. Please remember to continue to wear your mask, wash your hands, and although the vaccines are here, we are not quite at the finish line. Also, be sure to get all your questions answered so when it's your turn to get your shot, you can. It's been a pleasure to spend some time with you today, and I can't wait to see you next week. As always, I'm Michael Betts Second, and this has been Space of Justice.